Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics who is an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London. He's also the author of the podcast In Moscow's Shadows, as well as We Need to Talk About Putin and several other books about Russia. Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, great to be breaking new ground. All right. Uh, yes. Um, um, branching out a little bit with guests from outside of um, RFERL. Uh, so thanks very much. Uh, I've long wanted to have Mark as a guest. Uh, this is a good time for it because he's currently on a trip to Russia that I believe has taken him to Tula in addition to Moscow. Uh, we're going to talk about climate change and the tense situation in and around the Donbass in Ukraine. But first, I want to ask Mark about some of his impressions uh, from this visit um, to Russia. And, and I would include in that the coronavirus crisis, which has really deepened uh, with a, a spike in COVID-19 cases and deaths in recent weeks. Um, now, a nationwide non-working week um, uh, paid vacation decreed by President Vladimir Putin has begun, uh, and Moscow is in maybe its tightest lockdown, though not formally called a lockdown, since the start of the pandemic uh, early in 2020. Now, Mark, Mark, apologies if this is uh, amorphous, but could you describe uh, some of your main impressions uh, from Moscow to uh, whatever you like, really? Sure. Well, obviously, I'll try not to then spend the next three hours talking your heads off. Um, I mean, if, if we start with, with COVID, and it's worth saying, I mean, this is not actually the sort of tightest lockdown, certainly in Moscow. Okay. Um, there was a period where, where people were pretty much attempted to be anyway banned from going far from their homes and that kind of thing this is this is much more of, of a lockdown light and in some ways i mean that reflects the fact that yeah there doesn't seem to be a great sense of emergency about it i mean you know we had this record high levels um of cases and deaths we have the various sort of medical specialists becoming increasingly obviously um exasperated and even irate but on the whole, you know, again, there, there isn't much vaccine take up and there's a limit to what the government's willing to do about it. And that's really very striking. I mean, it's one it's clear that not only do they not have the money or are not willing to spend the money on sort of furlough schemes and similar support measures. You know, these non-working days are essentially the burden is on the employer rather than anything else. Right. But more importantly, there really isn't the kind of willingness to alienate the population there is this sense that now everything is about 2024 and the presidential elections. In some ways, the Duma elections were a kind of nationwide focus group to get them to sense of where they stand, which is not very well. And, you know, essentially, it's therefore about trying to sort of do what they can without actually annoying people. And thus, we have this quite kind of libertarian approach, which is more or less, look, there's lots of vaccines, there's lots of guidance, there's lots of advice. We tell you to put masks on or whatever. If you want to ignore it and put yourself at harm's way, ah, knock yourself out. So it's an interesting, much, much more kind of low key sense. And you don't actually walking around the city feel that there is a great kind of pandemic. I mean, yes, there's mask laws in, in, in shops and on public transport and about maybe for generous 50 50 usage. But that's about it. So that's one thing. Two other things very quickly. I mean, again, talking about mood. 
I was struck. I was expecting the sort of liberal intelligentsia types who were kind of a natural constituency to be meeting here to be actually much, much more downbeat and negative. And I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're happy with the status quo. It's just in some ways, it's interesting that, you know, there was the there were concern about foreign agents law. There was a, then it was in some ways succeeded by the Zuev case, this rector of very liberal, the Shaninka, this very liberal Moscow University, right. who was caught up in a, a, an embezzlement case. More recently, we had the rather surreal case of Rashkin, the Moscow communist boss, sort of, and a thorn in the Kremlin side being, being sort of caught with a half-skinned elk in his trunk of his car. And in some ways, I think what's really interesting is that it's almost as if actually the very drumbeat of cases of or examples of authoritarianism and repression almost has a numbing effect. That it's almost like, oh, yeah, you know, this thing happens, but, but life goes on. Um, which is interesting. And the last point I'd make is, I mean, Tula, um, you know, I went, I always like to get out of Moscow to get a sense of, of the country. And incidentally, Tula, lovely city. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting is that, you know, it is going through a certain process of development of its own. Um, you know, one can see that there's construction, there's modernization and such like. Still, obviously, nothing like the kind of resources that get thrown into Moscow. But first of all, that there clearly is a sense of local civil pride. And a sense, and I think this is actually much broader than just Tula, that they develop despite, not thanks to central government. Very definitely a sense that you know, we're having to do this ourselves. And in that respect, you know, while I was there, the big news was that there was a delegation that had gone to Turkey to talk about um, you know, improved trade links and such like. And at the same time, there was talks going on between Tula and the Moscow city authorities, not the Kremlin, but the city authorities, right. precisely about transport links. And it really reminded me of the fact that this huge country, cities and regions, in effect, have their own foreign policies with other cities and regions. You know, we, we have a tendency to focus very much on what the Kremlin is doing. But in fact, the amount of activity that takes place on an inter-regional, inter-governor and so forth level, as well as these countries and sort of many countries speaking out to other nations abroad. That's, that's actually a sort of a dimension that I, I certainly want to look at more. And I do think we, because we tend to underplay it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm struck by your uh, comment about the kind of the drumbeat of cases Um you know, I guess becoming sort of a almost background noise in a way. Um, it sounds like something that uh, I mean. I guess in in one sense, uh, uh, you know, it creates you know, as you say, a numbing effect. Um, uh, and it seems seems interesting. Um, I was wondering uh, also what. Did you did you notice any difference between? I mean, I guess you were in Tula before the. Uh, the non-working week started, but did you notice much of a difference uh, in be- between Moscow and, and Tula? Uh, you know, in terms of the the COVID, um, the attitude or the mood or the uh, you know what's happening related to COVID. Yeah, I mean, very much. Again, it's interesting. I mean, while I was there, in fact, Tula itself brought in in advance of national or indeed Moscow regulations. Um, they brought in the sort of requirements that to go into museums and similar sites, you had to show a QR code. 
And although I have been double vaccinated, I have not been double vaccinated with Russian vaccines. Right. And therefore, in any case, I, I, I'm not eligible to get one of these QR codes. Um, and it's not that Tula is actually in a particularly bad shape. It's not one of these places like um, Khakassia, which is essentially almost, I hesitate to call it martial law, but brought in very, very draconian regulations precisely because of the scale of the problem. It's more just, again, reflects the fact that Putin has, to a large extent, abdicated responsibility. There isn't a, a clear, sort of detailed and granular central policy. And therefore, the, you know, there, there is a lot of scope for, for the regions. And in some cases, regions are going to act in a more aggressive way towards the, the pandemic, and in others, less so. And, and you know, in, in Tula's case, as it did, as it has in the past, in, through the course of the pandemic, they, they, they chose to, shall I say, um, you know, early movers rather than anything else. So again, it shows something about the, the, the degree to which this is a very, very disparate country. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and you also mentioned the, um, you know, the fact that the, that the Kremlin, Putin doesn't really want to aggravate anyone um, too, too much um, now and, and even going, going closer to, to 2024. You know, and it struck me that, you know, Putin... He, but his his attitude does seem to have changed in that at first he was he was saying, well, you know, it's a personal choice uh, vaccination. Um, and then and and lately he's been, uh, you know, obviously it's not mandatory, but he but now his explanation is, well, I don't understand. He said the other day, I don't understand what's happening. You know, these people I know, smart people, educated people. um, are not getting the vaccine. Um, so, you know, he's kind of, uh, I, I think he's sort of sloughed off the, you know, the, the I guess the blame, you know, onto, onto the people themselves in terms of, well, it's your, it's still your choice, but, you know, I, and, I, and I don't understand what you're doing. So, um, you know, I, I find that interesting. It is a very brief point on that. I mean, again, it's interesting. We have a tendency to think of, you know, Kremlin and the Russian people. What this really brings up is, although there clearly doesn't seem to be any sort of mass desire for, shall we say, a central policy, um, the all-important regional elites who actually the people who are having to, to, to manage this policy and to find the money to pay for it, because, you know, it, it's all very well sort of basically saying regions should drive policy to reflect local circumstances – but, you know, they, they can't just simply say, well, fair enough, and our local circumstances are that we need to be paying people to stay home, and therefore we need to have more money from, from the central sort of treasury as, as a result. And I think that's where actually there is a level. You, you, you can see reading between the lines. I mean, again, no, no governor is going to come out and actually complain about Putin. But reading between the lines, I mean, there is a degree of tension there. Mm -hmm. There is a sense of, shall I say, the not the foot soldiers, but let's say the, the sort of the regional boyars, right. um, that, that definitely at the moment they are in a bad spot. And that's simply because Putin does not want to be the bad guy here. Absolutely. Uh, very interesting. Okay, let's uh, talk a bit about climate change um, and what has been, I guess, something of an about face on the issue, or at least on signaling about the issue of climate change on Putin's part. Uh, back in 2003, I believe, he said a few degrees of warming would, would save Russians money on fur coats. Uh, and much more recently, and, and I guess more seriously, in 2018, I think, he was still questioning the human-caused nature of climate change. Um, but um, this past uh, June, uh, he changed his tone 
Um, and uh, he's in, in remarks at the the Valdai Club meeting last month um, that were, I mean, at least in my in my view, more notable for what could charitably be called controversial or provocative remarks about gender identity. He spoke in a serious tone about um, climate change. Now, Putin is uh, not attending the climate summit that started in Glasgow yesterday uh, in person. Uh, and Moscow's dedication to real action is a matter of debate. Is a matter of debate. But Putin uh, did pledge uh, last month that Russia will strive to be carbon neutral by 2060, meaning that it would absorb Russia would absorb as much carbon as it emits, kind of a, a net zero. Um, uh, I think that's uh, called the same thing. Uh, but um, U.S. President Joe Biden at the G summit. Uh, G20 summits are yesterday that preceded the um, the climate change meetings uh, said that Russia and China quote basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change uh, unquote so Mark I guess a simple question that may not have a very simple answer is the Russian change of heart for real uh, and if so what has caused it yeah, I mean, I think it is real. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's a, you know, a little bit un ungenerous because he, he definitely is late to the party. So he can't necessarily expect it to have many commitments. But they are, for example, sending a very substantial delegation to um, COP26. Um, I think the reason why, and I mean, you have to realise that he he may... He may have internalized the idea, but I'm not quite sure how well he understands it. I mean, he, he was just uh, say, saying that, in fact, Russia's forests are going to be much more effective than any sort of obvious uh, sort of green measures, which really is not the case. It's actually a good Felix Light piece in the Moscow Times um, on this. So, you know, limited understanding. But I think the thing is, this is in some ways a case study for how Putin's views are shaped. You know, he is not intellectually dominant in the sense often of coming up with the ideas it's who managed to persuade him and i think what we've seen is in recent times a series of powerful political blocks close to putin themselves shifting their positions i mean you know particularly for example we have the military not least because they're alarmed at realizing the extent to which so much of their military infrastructure in the high north is actually sitting on permafrost and they don't want to see it sinking in, in into the ice we had the agricultural lobby. Again, once there was this notion that, oh, Siberia will warm up and it'll be this wonderful new area for farming. Right. Well, A, there just isn't the infrastructure for moving harvests from there. But more to the point, actually, more quickly than that, they would find that their existing farmlands, many of them they would lose to um, desertification or just general becoming arid. You have entrepreneur, well, should I say politician entrepreneurs like uh, German Greff of Spare and Anatoly of Rosnano, who have identified this actually as a potential money-making venture for, for what, presumably for themselves, but also uh -huh. for, for, for Russia as a whole. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, I think we, what we do find is, is that, again, you know, there are interests in now done. And, you know, it's also worth noting the extent to which you have individual politics coming in. I mean, you know, the particular example would be, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at the UK ambassador's residence here. And, you know, I think one does have to actually recognize that Ambassador Deborah Bronner, British ambassador, and her team have done a frankly exemplary job of not easing up with Russia on issues of contention, but nonetheless working in areas where cooperation is just possible and necessary. 
And, and at this event, the, the guest speaker was Ruslan Edelgeriev, the Chechen ex-cop and ex-prime minister, who is now the presidential envoy on, on climate change, you know, who then seems personally and genuinely committed to, you know, actually really grappling with this agenda. So, you know, I think you, you put all this together and essentially it's, and it's the same sort of transition as in a way has happened in, in other countries, which is moving climate change away from just being something about saving bunny rabbits and pleasing scientists and actually addressing very, very hard-edged issues of security and economic power. And that's the kind of language, shall we say, that, that Putin does respond to. So, you know, again, so it's a pragmatic one. It's, it's a delayed one. And I'm not quite sure how well, you know, an understanding that climate change is important combines with a real understanding of the kind of hard, tough moves which are going to be needed to deal with it. But nonetheless, for all that, I think we have to say that this is a genuine conversion. Yeah, that, that's that's very uh, interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned, but again, you mentioned, um, you know, how how serious going to be and, and will will the measures be taken? And I think you you spoke about, um, you know, his Putin's statement that I believe he said forests, you know, Russia's forests can absorb two point five or billion. Oh, I don't remember the figures, but essentially it was it was an amount that was you know. Uh, much much larger in terms of absorbing carbon uh, than than I think um, you know others have 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 indicated uh, Russia's forests were capable of doing, um, and that maybe I think uh, measures separate measures would have to be taken to, in order to at least uh, make that have a chance of, of being possible. So so as as I think you indicate, you know, kind of a question about what measures will really be taken, but uh, but sounds like a genuine. I guess change change of heart um, go or uh, change of of policy um, based on various you know pressure pressure groups and you know maybe also the the idea that uh, it's uh, you know it's it maybe it's something that he feels he can um, uh, engage a bit more with you know with the West on perhaps. Well, that's certainly the the idea. But again, I think this is, this is the problem. I think, you know, ultimately, he's still at that point of hoping to find cheap and easy solutions, hence right. this dependence on forests. Not least, it's worth mentioning that considering the terrible scourge at the moment of forest fires, which actually not only consume forests, but also put out a huge amount of, of, of carbon. So actually, you know, thinking you can rely on, on the forests to somehow do do the job is is naive at best so yeah i mean again i think this is it it's it's the start of the process and i think one, one of the things you know, you know if we're looking forward you know when we see this big delegation has has, has gone to the, the, the cop summit and okay it's not putin but then again you know in in these pandemic eras he basically doesn't travel um it, it, is this an attempt you might say to use quantity instead of quality to you just simply say, well, we, we sent loads of people there, which right. is all very well, but what are they actually going to do? And I think this is it. They, we haven't had any real signaling of what they might be saying or doing at the summit. And so I think this is this is going to be the real challenge for the, for the moment, is actually are they just going as tourists and as spectators, or are, are we actually going to hear something? Right. And so far from what Biden said, it sounds like at least the U.S. is... is uh 
you know, is is thinking maybe the former. Um, and yeah, good, uh, good to thanks for mentioning the forest fires. I think one of the things I read that you know would have to be done to make higher kind of absorption numbers realistic would be to actually do more about about forest fires, uh, wildfires. So, so that's a, a huge obstacle. It sounds like. All right. Um, now uh, let's move on. There's um, a lot going on uh, in and around Russia. But one, uh, the one other issue I'd like to discuss is the heightened tension um, in and around the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, where more than 13,000 people have been killed uh, since 2014, and the conflict between Kiev and uh, Russia-backed forces continues. Uh, some of the ingredients in, in the current tension, um, or the current increase in tension, are Russian troop, troop movements. Uh, and signs of a buildup near the Ukrainian border. Uh, the use of, by Ukrainian forces of a Turkish-made drone, um, I think that was last week, and a shift and sharpening of Russia's rhetoric on Ukraine in general. Uh, this has come from Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, Sergei Lavrov, and others. And some analysts uh, who are known not to be alarmist about this uh, issue uh, are saying the situation must be watched closely. Um, uh, in the ne- in the coming days and weeks, Mark, what's your take on what's going on here, both uh, I guess on the ground uh, and in Moscow and Kiev? Is there a serious cause for concern? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously always always the the problem in that most times these things come to nothing much, and mm-hmm. you know on the one hand there are some people who precisely will always be saying, oh my God, this is a sign that Russia intends to invade or similar, and and others who say no 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 it never happens. Well, but occasionally it does. So yes, one always has to have a certain degree of caution and not be too positive. But nonetheless, I mean, if one looks at really what what seems to have happened, I mean, Ukrainian forces went into the no man's land between the lines, um, on to, to, to the village of Staromarivka. I mean, apparently escorting some aid shipments or whatever. Nonetheless, that was taken by the rebels as a sign of hostile intent. They sh- they shelled the Ukrainians. One of them died. In response, then the Ukrainians sent in their Badakta TB2 drone, destroyed this D30 howitzer that had opened fire. And then in response to that, the Russians, you know, obviously sharpen their rhetoric, but also start moving some troops around because they know that always concentrates the mind wonderfully. Now, on one level, this sounds like an escalatory cycle. But on the other hand, frankly, this also has a certain sense of being, you know, the the usual ritual. Everyone has to demonstrate their own strength, their own machismo, their own capacity and willingness to, 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 to push back. And, you know, after a certain point, these things tend to dissipate. It's interesting. I was, I was looking, for example, at the Russian press this morning, and there's very, very little about it. There, you mm-hmm. know, there was an initial flurry of reports, obviously, at the time of the attack. But, you know, there's, there's nothing much there, even in, for example, Krasnaya Zvezda, the Russian army newspaper. So certainly there's not any signal there that, that sort of Moscow is trying to kind of prepare the ground okay. for anything else. Instead, they're, they're saying, oh, it's just that Zelensky needed to try and sort of, um, you know, distract political uh, opposition and also demonstrate his his importance uh, to to the um, Western leadership. So, again, you know, however awkward and uncomfortable it makes me feel because it sort of, you know, runs the risk that um, I, I, I could be very, very dangerously wrong on this. My sense is that neither Moscow nor Kiev at the moment have any desire 
for a serious escalation. Of course, sometimes things aren't controlled or controllable, but it's also noteworthy that you know in, in international partners seem to be trying to get this to be sort of played down. Right. Um, you know, the, the Germans, for example, as I recall, issued a very sort of I hesitate to say plague on both your houses, but you know, encouraging both sides to to to, to de-escalate and so forth. The Turks, quite interestingly, have very much distanced themselves from from the attack, more or less saying, well, once we sell the drone, it's absolutely nothing to do with us. Right. There isn't this sense that there is a sort of a, a, a strong sort of push from outside to, to encourage you, Ukraine to go further. So, you know, and, and I, I hope that by the end of this week, I have not been proven to be totally wrong, but I, I think this is just one of these things that, that will actually bubble down after a certain sort of usual exchange of unpleasant and acrimonious language. Okay, well, that that's very useful. I, I, we're, we don't have too much time left, so I'd just like to ask one follow-up question about that or comment. Um, you know, it, there has been... You know, there have been all these articles by Putin about Ukraine, one people, um, that sort of thing. And recently comments um, about red lines, uh, and I think it was um, the Kremlin spokesman, Peskov, who who was talking about, well, you know, Ukraine may not join NATO ever, but, uh, or in the near future, but, you know, they, but uh that doesn't mean that nato military infrastructure won't be uh developed in ukraine and that's like a red line for russia so um uh that's the kind of thing i'm wondering you know is that is that sort of signaling about well you know now we're going to have a lower threshold that russia's going to have a lower threshold for for some sort of offensive or is it uh kind of um just laying the groundwork for giving giving Putin giving himself options as as he um, often does. So I guess that's a or or something else. I, I don't know if I, that question made sense, but um, the signaling from from Russia about red lines is it does it mark a change? I'm not sure if it marks a change because it's interesting. First of all, that we also had Peskov recently actually saying, well, you know, we can't stop Ukraine from joining NATO. We, though, obviously, we would take steps to sort of minimize the the security implications for us, right. which might have been a nudge towards something like sort of annexation of the Donbass or something like that. Who knows? Right. Um, but more broadly, look, red lines, politicians love red lines. In practice, you know, red lines have a tendency to, to blur and fade in the sun. Um, I think, I mean, yes, there's there's no question that from Russia's point of view, it would reg- see any kind of extension of NATO security architecture into Ukraine, even without membership, as something extremely worrying and in many ways actually playing to seem to justify precisely the same sort of paranoid rhetoric, which actually was used to justify uh, the annexation of Crimea. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that said, I see absolutely no sign that NATO have any interest or, or desire to do that themselves. Um, so there is an element in which actually sort of Russia gets to demonstrate that it's tough and and is willing to push back against the enemies of the motherland by basically saying you must not do something that almost certainly would not be happening any, in any case. I think from, from, from the Russians' point of view, well, from let's say, Putin's point of view, um, you know, he's in something of, of, of an impasse. And again, that's you mentioned these lengthy and turgid historical articles that he writes. 
And, you know, it's it's a rather surreal experience to find a president of one of the powerful nations of the world playing amateur historian and a rather bad amateur historian at that. But it says something about the extent to which not only does he genuinely, I think, think of Ukraine as being some kind of sort of annex of, 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 the, of Russia, historically, culturally, as well as politically and economically, but also that he's grappling with the, the dawning realization that in many ways it's precisely his actions really have lost Ukraine to Russia. Um, you know, even if they manage to Finlandize it and force it to be neutral or something like that, the Ukrainian people themselves are unlikely ever to look to Russia the same kind of um, fellow feeling, almost sort of family feeling that, that they once did. And Ukraine is now much more of a state than it has ever been. So I think, you know, for all these reasons, this, this is a really difficult issue for, for, for Russia, Russia's leaders to deal with not just on a practical level but also on a psychological level and often that will kind of bubble out into this kind of intemperate language but we shouldn't necessarily regard it as rigidly programmatic they are not actually specifically saying this is the flow chart and if you do this then we will do that okay absolutely it sounds like you know more flailing around i guess and and um you know trying to deal with something that's already, I don't know, the, the train has left the station, I guess. Um, all right, well, running out of time, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Mark, thanks very much for joining me. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. All right, great to have you on the podcast. Um, okay, I'll be back next Monday, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>